The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. So the first thing I want to talk about is just the kind of a summary of the, of the book. And I should start by saying the thing that got me interested in this originally was I was in Cambodia in March of uh, 2010 uh, when an old Cambodia scholar, a guy named Ali Loka, uh, took myself and a couple friends, or, or one friend and a couple other uh, hangers-on, uh, to an air an airfield, an abandoned airfield in the middle of Cambodia, in this area in uh, Kampong Chenang, uh, which is just kind of like Las Vegas. You, there's nothing there, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of all these sugar palms and uh, grazing animals, there's an airfield. And everybody referred to this airfield as the Chinese airfield. Um, and as we talked to people around there, uh, it, what they told us is that this is something that was built during the Khmer Rouge era by the Chinese. Um, and this is something that uh, just got me thinking as to why was this built, who built it, how was it built, what does it say about China's relations with uh, the, the democratic Kampuchea regime. Um, and it just, it just started a whole kind of spiraling of all sorts of questions and really motivated this project. I'll come back to the airfield um, in, in due course. So as I was thinking about this project, uh, I, we generally know in broad brushstrokes that China was um, an important, in fact, key ally of the regime of democratic Kampuchea under Pol Pot uh, from 1975 to 19, the very, very early um, uh, part of 1979. But we really don't know much beyond that. So what I really wanted to do is get into this a little bit and, and, and try to get a sense of what was going on to establish some sort of a systematic understanding of this relationship. And I ended up focusing on Chinese aid to Democratic Kampuchea. Um, and as I was uh, going through the, the, uh, the data that I was collecting, um, I came up with, uh, or, or I was confronted with this puzzle that uh, when uh, the Khmerians came to power in 1975, uh, on April 17th of that year, it was a country that had been rocked uh, and decimated by civil war, by American B-52 bombing, and it was, even before that, the economy itself, much of the rural economy was literally medieval, um, and the economic and commercial infrastructure was really quite modest. Um, so this was the, the definition of a supine uh, 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 um, uh, weak uh, country. Yet China, which at that point was already a nuclear power and, um, and, and certainly a regional superpower, um, was unable to influence uh, the uh, policies undertaken by its client state, that of democratic Kampuchea. And so this is the puzzle that I wanted to uh, answer uh, in this book. And the answer, not surprisingly for those of you who... Um, who know my work or have uh, come across it uh, has to do with if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. For me, I do Chinese bureaucratic politics. So if there's any question about China, it's like, well, it's bureaucratic politics. What else could it be? So this is, when I look at China, if you ask me a question about hydropower, this is my answer. If you ask me a question about foreign trade, this is my answer. If you ask me a question about intellectual property, this is my answer. So if you... Ask me the puzzle about why China was unable to influence Khmer Rouge policy. 
this is the answer. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack this um, over the next few minutes. Um, not surprisingly, my argument is an institutional bureaucratic politics argument, and that is that to understand the variation in outcomes of Chinese uh, foreign aid and assistance and the influence that came with it vis-a-vis -vis democratic Kampuchea, you have to look not only at the individual bureaucracies on, on each of the two sides, but also in terms of the dynamic interactions between them. So I look at three bureaucracies, or not three bureaucracies, right? I look at three cases of uh, foreign aid. One is military aid, the second is uh, infrastructure assistance, uh, and then the third is trade. And what I find is, in, uh, in the case of military aid, I'm going to go through this very quickly, um, we had a number of situations where China had some very, very clear priorities in terms of where it wanted certain things built, um, whether it was the airfield in Kampong Chenang that I started this talk with, or whether it was uh, radar installations um, uh, uh, throughout the country. Um, China... Uh, essentially told Phnom Penh, or Beijing told Phnom Penh what it wanted. Phnom Penh said, thanks very much, we'll take that into consideration. And instead uh, uh, responded by saying, this is what we want, uh, regardless of what you want, are you still going to help us? And China said yes. In the case of the, so in, in the, case of the, um, the airfields, uh, China wanted the airfield up near the, uh, the Cambodian-Thai border, um, the Cambodians wanted it here. Um, one of the reasons why the Chinese didn't want it so close, uh, close to the middle of the country is because it's uh, actually quite close to Vietnam. Um, and when the Vietnamese invaded in late 1978, they were actually able to uh, fire some ordnance onto the airfield. The airfield was built so well that the Cambodians who were there at the time said that the, the bombs falling on the airfield was like chickens pecking on the runway. So it was the um, Chinese knew how to build airfields. Uh, in terms of radar installations, again, um, the, uh, camp, the Chinese wanted the radar installations in the southwestern part of the country, facing out towards the Gulf of Thailand. Um, the Cambodians wanted these radar facilities built pretty much all over the country, but particularly along its land borders with Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. Again, the Cambodians got what they wanted. Um, what explains this this outcome. Um, to cut to the chase, the argument that I make in the book is that both China and Cambodia had fairly uh, well-run uh, security bureaucracies. Um, in the case of Cambodia, uh, Cambodia didn't do uh, many things terribly well during this period, but one of the things that did very well, uh, as we know from all the literature on it, and, and is they were able to uh, establish and maintain a security state. So the military and civilian security apparatus were, were, were one uh, under um, the, uh, the direct control of Sun Sen, uh, and essentially this was a bureaucracy that was able to push back um, China's demands. They had the ear of Pol Pot and Nguyen Chia, who were at the top of the, uh, of the ruling apparatus. And as a result, as I mentioned, uh, China was uh, confronted with uh, either do it our way or don't help us at all. Um, and China um, was, decided to, uh, to do it the Cambodian's way. That's not terribly uh, surprising. And that's, that's the way a lot of things um, uh, in, in the foreign aid world work. 
Um, what's more interesting or what's more surprising are these other cases where the outcomes were actually quite different. Um, this just gives you an idea of what um, one of the engineering corps of the uh, cores of the Chinese uh, military around that time looked like. Um, and to look at it graphically, um, you have fairly streamlined bureaucracies on both sides, um, and uh, uh, the result is um, that the airfields, the, um, the um, radar installations, and other things that the Cambodians want, wanted China provided. The place where China held firm and refused to give uh, Phnom Penh what it wanted was to have active Chinese military on the ground in Cambodia. Uh, they had plenty of Chinese military advisors, but not actual Chinese fighting units. Okay, the second uh, um, case that I want to look at is that of infrastructure assistance, and that has to do, uh, and I'm going to focus on the, the, the case of the uh, petroleum refinery in Kampong Som in southwestern Cambodia. Uh, this is um, a, a photograph at the time, taken at the time by one of the Chinese uh, technicians involved. Um, and what became very, very, so the, the goal of this, of this project was to retrofit um, a, a petroleum facility that had been built by the French in 1968 in order to process crude oil from China. It had been uh, set up to process crude oil from the Middle East, and then it had been uh, um, uh, run down, and um, parts of it had been uh, taken away during the Cambodian Civil War. So by 1975, it was really, uh, it, it, needed, uh, it needed a facelift. Uh, and it also needed to, to, to be able to process Chinese crude. Um, plans for the project uh, began in 1976, um, and for the next two years, it was a comedy of errors. You had all sorts of problems uh, uh, emanating both on the Chinese side and on the Cambodian side. These are all quotes from Chinese workers who were at the site at the time, and these were the, the complaints that they had. Um, Everything from uh, uh, the fact that they were not getting what they wanted uh, from the various ministries that they were attached to, to the fact that the Cambodians were sitting there laughing at them, to the fact that they missed their manto. Um, and uh, were, um, uh, there were all sorts of other problems associated with, with, with being there that I don't have um, time to get into right, right now. Um, the problems on the Chinese side were you had very, very poor coordination among the various bureaucracies. Everything from mismatched parts to all sorts of uh, uh, turf wars between not only ministries, but the various design institutes that were attached to the ministries. Um, and on the Cambodian side, you had poorly skilled workers. There was uh, one of the engineers, uh, Chinese engineers that I talked to, missed his only opportunity to visit Angkor Wat because he was told that his, the pilot on his plane was 17 years old. And he decided that maybe I'll give that one a miss. Uh, as a result, by, uh, by 1978, it really became unclear to the Chinese who on the Cambodian side they should even report to. Um, and part of the reason there was you, you had um, uh, all sorts of purges that were now um, uh, uh, targeting uh, the commercial infrastructure and the person in charge, ultimately in charge, of uh, this type of a project. So if you look at it graphically, it looks a little bit more like this. So much like the outcome is the same in terms of the military, uh, in terms of influence, uh, as it was in the first case, which is that China didn't end up having much 
um, but the reasons why were quite different. The one place where China was able to exercise influence was in the area of trade. And it was, I, I don't know why, I'm, I, I, I have a picture of the, the, the Mayagas um, here, which is really not the right, uh, but I just wanted to give um, uh, a sense of what a container vessel at that time looked like. What was really interesting is that it seems to me that uh, the Cambodian side really didn't think much about trade, uh, that it wasn't a top uh, priority issue. Um, and so there was a little bit of political, uh, of a political gray area there where they could pretty much uh, run with something uh, with, and, and, and not be under the, the magnifying glass of, of the top leadership. Uh, on the Chinese side, you had a fairly uh, well-run, streamlined bureaucracy that stovepiped a lot of trade issues in ways that were that, that, that allowed for more uh, efficient and effective outcomes. Certainly, much more so than uh, than what would have been the case even 15 years after that. Um, on the Cambodian side, I can talk about. Uh, go into excruciating detail, but the, the, the bottom line was that Cambodian bureaucracy in terms of domestically uh, distributing uh, and managing uh, uh, goods that were coming in as well as goods that were prepared for export was actually a fairly well-run uh, bureaucracy. And as a result, you had all sorts of really strange outcomes. So first of all, the person at the very, very top was a guy named Born Beck, who was um, one of, uh, uh, of the original leaders of the Khmer Rouge movement, uh, somebody who was uh, uh, quite close to Pol Pot and who had a fair amount of, uh, he was also the supervisor of, uh, of, uh, of Son Sen uh, when it came to issues of security. So he was somebody who was fairly well placed and somebody who had a fair amount of free reign in terms of what he wanted to do. That is until November of uh, 1978 when he was arrested, tortured, and then executed. Um, one of the interesting outcomes was that the Chinese were able to help build an import-export company run by Khmer Rouge cadre uh, based in downtown Hong Kong in Central uh, on Devo Road. Um, and uh, it was a company of four people uh, that lived together in a communal apartment in Happy Valley. This is a photograph of the lobby. Um, and um, you know, one can only imagine the, the, the various types of uh, sitcoms that one can come up with. <laughs> Three and a half Khmer I don't know. Um, and there were even plans of doing uh, something similar in Singapore. Um, in fact, the Khmer Rouge were expanding their trading links, not only with China, but also with countries like Japan, uh, France, Singapore, and a number of others um, through these import-export companies so that they, uh, their, their trading partners uh, would have plausible deniability by saying, well, we don't trade with the Khmer Rouge. Okay, so what are some of the larger conceptual implications of this? Um, if there's one takeaway from this talk that I'd like, uh, I'd like people to have is that we often think about Chinese domestic politics as being uh, highly fragmented. Um, certainly, uh, the people who trained me as a scholar of Chinese politics uh, uh, the, 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 the sum of their life's work uh, underscores the fact that Chinese uh, bureaucracies, Chinese institutions are badly fragmented and that policy outputs rarely uh, uh, resemble the initial thoughts, goals, um, and interests of the people that began the policy process. 
Yet, when we think about not domestic politics, but when we think about international politics or China's international behavior, we tend to think of China as being elite-driven, top-down, and largely monolithic. And in fact, there is a disconnect there. Why, and this is a rhetorical why, why do we do that? In fact, we're looking at the same exact bureaucracies when we're looking at the implementation of policy, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy in China. And so that's the, if there's a larger lesson in this book, it is this. Okay. And ultimately, I think the, the other takeaway is that uh, if we want to think about China's international behavior, um, probably the, the way to think about it is that China's uh, ability to influence its, uh, its, its international partners is really only as good as the institutions that manage that relationship. Okay. How am I doing on time? We're uh, doing quite well. Okay, great. Excellent. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, great. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit. So that's the basic argument. And um, if it seemed really quick and if you'd like to delve into it in more detail, um, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to uh, uh, talk about it during the Q&A. And uh, there are plenty of copies of the book over there, which I might add would make wonderful Mother's Day. <laughs> um, but what I want to do now is really talk about how this, how this idea came about because people don't usually uh, do that and I thought that this particular research project had a number of dead ends and false starts and difficulties that I hadn't confronted before and um, it's, uh, it's something that I, that, that, um, I, I like to I talk about to at least give people you know, some sense of hope that uh, um, if you set your mind to something, it, you, you might be able to reach it, even though it looks it, it looks pretty dicey at times. So I first got interested in, like I said, in uh, March of 2010 when I visited the airfield in uh, in Kampong Chenam called the Crimea Airfield. While we were there, we did all sorts of things. We um, first of all, we, we we negotiated with the general um, who uh, was in charge of that area, and we asked him if we could go to the airfield, if we could go visit various parts of the, the infrastructure, and he said, yeah, sure, that's fine, just uh, remember me on your way out. So we asked, so how much, how much does remembering him cost? So while we, so as long as we paid him the 20 bucks, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. So we, it's a two kilometer long airstrip, so we, we, we just we floored the car going in this direction and that direction. <laughs> Kind of things oh, that we, we so you still have more problems? Oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah, I was wondering if you were, if no. you were saying, oh, time's up. One of the things that we did when we were there is we actually went under one of the mountains that was there um, and went about, uh, about half to three quarters of a kilometer in. Um, and we saw this big, uh, this, this actually massive um, uh, complex of offices that were built by the Chinese. Um, to uh, in, in service of this airfield. It was unfinished, um, but it was pretty extraordinary, and this was something that uh, Cambodian technology was, was completely unable to, uh, to do for, the, if, uh, for no other reason that, um, uh, that Cambodian engineers had pretty much been um, all killed at the, the early parts of the revolution. So this is really quite extraordinary. There's any number of, um, you know, we saw maybe a dozen huge rooms, um, and 
they were uh, being fitted for electricity and, 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 and plumbing and things like that. So this was really something that was, that was quite extraordinary. And it was, uh, it was something, the only reason we were able to go there is because we knew it, it existed. It was completely camouflaged from, um, so that, that got me interested in, in, in the project uh, initially. Unfortunately, two months before that, in January of 2010, the, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Cambodia, um, Madame uh, Zhang Jingfeng, who's over here, um, said that, uh, denied that China had any uh, influence at all um, and had anything to do with uh, the domestic politics of democratic Cambodia, which unfortunately made it very difficult for me to do research in China because it was very difficult for me to go and say, uh, I know that you didn't do this, but can you give me some data on what you didn't do? <laughs> so it was, as a result, I had to go do things kind of from the uh, from from the back door, so to speak. Not so much in Cambodia, in China, but in Cambodia. Uh, so one of the things I was able to do is I was um, uh, I worked uh, at the the um, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia for a few months, uh, in in both when, while I was in Ithaca and I also spent a couple weeks in uh, in Cambodia. Um, uh, this is the war crimes tribunal that's still uh, ongoing, um, and I was able to get uh, uh, quite a bit of information, a lot of data um, while I was there. Unfortunately, I can only use the smallest fraction of it because it is um, it is it is still um, uh, uh, it, it's I'm trying to think of yarn. I can think of all the Chinese classifications. I'm trying to think of it in English. It's uh, it's, uh, it's, it's embargoed because it's the trial is It's ongoing. embargoed. It, it, so this is not. I, I cannot use. I cannot use this data, unfortunately. But it's there, um, and it'll tell an extraordinary story when it is out. But at least it got me thinking in terms of, and it, it allowed me to access things that, that, that would help me um, uh, move forward. One of the other things, and this is the really. Uh, the really important um, uh, thing that happened is I stumbled across um, a set of folders. Each folder is about this thick, full of Chinese documents at the National Archives in Phnom Penh. Uh, these are all from this, this period. They're blueprints for infrastructure projects, um, uh, for um, uh, military uh, projects, for this uh, blueprints for the Kampong Song refinery, as well as, a, as well as bills of lading, um, uh, and other trading documents. So, and there's uh, three dozen or so of these. Of these, uh, and so this was really a huge step forward. The problem was, and of course, the fact that they were all top secret made it really exciting for me as a researcher. Unfortunately, these documents were so technical that uh, initially I thought, "Wow, my Chinese really has gotten lousy because I can't really make sense of these." Then I had uh, some uh, some friends of mine who were native speakers take a look at it. <laughs> couldn't make sense of them either. I had some Chinese engineers look at them. They couldn't either. Um, this was so specialized that um, I was really kind of at a loss. So I had all this really, really great material, but I, I didn't know what to do with it. What do I do? So I was going to show a picture of the Great Wall and say, I hit a wall, but that would have been too old. <laughs> So I was, I was, I had made a few trips to China, seeking out friends and colleagues who I knew who were engineers who might be able to help me. None of them really knew what to, what to say. 
So finally, I was sitting in my office, and I had one of my undergraduates uh, uh, come to my office hours, and she was talking about a paper that she had to write, and she was having a hard time finding data. And I responded to her by saying, you're having a hard time finding data? <laughs> Let me tell you what it's like to not have data. And so we just started commiserating. And so we're talking for about 10, 15 minutes, and I saw a light bulb go off above her head. She said, you know, one of my grandparents was in the petroleum bureaucracy in China around that time. You want me to give them a call? And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, knock yourself out. You know, turns out, this grandparent was in the petroleum bureaucracy at the time, was quite popular, knew a whole bunch of people, including some of the technicians who were in Cambodia during that time. <laughs> so that was really a coup. Um, and in fact, some are in this photograph. I'm not going to tell you which ones because they are anonymous. I'll give you a hint. It is not Hu Yaobang. <laughs> it is not uh, Wang Dongxing. It is not uh, Yu Qiuyi. Uh, but somebody else in this, uh, in this photograph, or some other people in this photograph. These people were, so we arranged to, uh, this, this, this undergraduate and I went to China, uh, arranged to meet with these folks, spent two weeks interviewing them, debriefing them. And the really wonderful thing was, these were like um, old people anywhere. They have all these great stories, nobody wants to listen to them. And there we were saying, please tell us everything. And so they were, you know, they were delighted, and we just had, uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Really, really, some, some, some really amazing people. Um, not only did they, so they shared photographs uh, with us, they also shared their diaries at the time with us. So all of a sudden we were able to animate, uh, the, and then we were able to see some of their names on these blueprints, so we knew that uh, we had really come full circle. Uh, finally, um, and... I think the, the right response to this photograph is, wow, you've lost weight since then. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that I was able to do was uh, find people in Cambodia who were willing to talk uh, about this, this time. And this is actually, this is the, the former party secretary of the Democratic Kampuchean Embassy in Beijing uh, during that time. And initially I thought that there was no way that she would want to talk to me because this is, uh, and she's on, on the record, so it's not like she, she, she's, she's very outspoken about, about her experiences. But originally I sent my research assistant to go talk to her because I knew that she wouldn't want to, this would be too sensitive for her to want to talk to me. He came back a few minutes later saying, actually, no, she wants to talk to you. I was like, why? She hasn't spoken Chinese in 15 years. She's dying to speak Chinese. So I went there and... As you can see, we hit it off uh, pretty well. Uh, this was followed by a lunch, by the way, where she was telling me how the current um, uh, uh, leader of Cambodia, Hun Sen, really doesn't understand the democratic process. While under the same breath, she'd talk about how wonderful Pol Pot was, how a great sense of humor he had. And she's his former cook, by the way, which gives you an idea of, kind of what it takes to get through the civil service to become the party secretary of the Democratic Kampuchea and her husband, by the way, was the ambassador. And she would refer to him by, there was an urn at the, the top of a, of a shelf while we were interviewing in, in, in her house. And she's like, yes, there he is. He's listening to us. So anyway, it was a really surreal experience. But she was able to give all sorts of uh, really, really amazing detail. And one of the things that she underscored was that the Chinese were not at all happy with Pol Pot. Uh, particularly Deng Xiaoping was very, very uh, outspoken. 
Um, but when I asked her what Pol Pot's reaction was, she said, you know, he'd basically repeat what the Chinese said and then not say anything, which we all knew to mean that we don't really need to care about what the Chinese think. And um, most of my, I didn't interview this person, this was somebody, I uh, just wanted to give you an idea of some of the atmospherics of where these interviews take, uh, took place in Cambodia. It was usually in people's houses, which usually looked like this, although uh, they tended to be a bit uh, dirtier. Okay, finally, just in terms of time, uh, what I'd like to do is just finish up with the, the, the policy relevance of all of this. Um, when we look at China's foreign aid abroad, uh, well, uh, we look at Chinese foreign aid today, um, it's not difficult to come to the conclusion that uh, maybe uh, we should worry a bit more than we are because China's uh, influence with the, these, the, the, these other countries, particularly in the developing world, is likely to grow and come into conflict with, say, the United States' uh, 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 influence, um, and that maybe those are the, the, the fault lines by which we're likely to see tension uh, occurring in the, in the near future. My, my sense from this research is that um, this conventional wisdom that we, that we think about um, in terms of China's growing uh, international influence is actually not, not as compelling an argument as, uh, as I might have thought at the beginning of this research. My sense, as I said before, is that uh, we, to understand uh, the efficacy of China's interactions with uh, these other countries and its ability to manage these relationships, we really have to focus on kind of the sub-national or, or the sub-elite kind of uh, governing and government institutions of China, uh, many of which um, are, were, were built uh, in the 1950s and simply are not uh, built and are not calibrated to handle the types of uh, challenges uh, that China faces uh, today. As a result, uh, these institutions tend to be uh, far more fragmented than we uh, than we might think them to be. Um, and for those of us who study Chinese domestic politics, I think what we one of the things that we can do to share uh, with our colleagues who look at China's international relations is to uh, put forward this this notion that ch uh, that uh, Chinese bureaucra bureaucracies. And are um, are the the, the ones that um, that manage China's domestic politics are oftentimes the very same ones that handle uh, China's the, the implementation of Chinese foreign policy, uh, particularly when we're, we're looking at China's uh, extending its um, influence abroad. One of the other interesting things that came about during this research is that the time period of democratic Kampuchea uh, was a really uh, unique time in Chinese history as well. So when the Khmer Rouge took over on January 17, 1975, uh, Mao was still alive, the leftists were still ascendant, um, and Deng Xiaoping was eh, a few months away from being purged a second time. By the time the Vietnamese invaded uh, uh, Cambodia and took over Phnom Penh in uh, early January, uh, China had just completed its, uh, the, uh, its third plenum of the 11th Central Committee, 
um, and dung was, uh, if not already on U.S. soil, um, uh, close to it. Um, the reformers had uh, had triumphed, so you really have kind of the gamut of Chinese of the Chinese political spectrum on display during this time period. Yet policy towards democratic Kampuchea was remarkably remarkably stable and constant during that time. And finally, some might say, well, Chinese institutions were fragmented back then. Are they really as fragmented today as they were back then? And my argument would be, if anything, they're even more so today. So um, I think that uh, uh, one always has to be very careful about the generalizations that they make, particularly if they're based on kind of a bilateral relationship and experience that occurred almost four decades ago. Nonetheless, I think there are some lessons here if we take them with sufficient um, care um, to understanding how China manages its uh, bilateral relations uh, today. And let me close with that, and thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Whenever I see those pictures, I always think of Andy as the Indiana Jones of the political science field going out to these airfields in the, in the middle of Cambodia and things like that. I remember so. you and I pouring over those, uh, those pictures in Hong Kong. Uh, right. when I, Fresh off the. Uh... So I want to uh, just reframe a question that I've, that I've asked you previously. Um, one of the main uh, points of your book is that China got precious little in return for their aid, mm -hmm. and it seemed to me that what China said at the time and says now is our aid comes with no strings attached. We don't interfere with your domestic politics, or a few strings attached, and we don't uh, interfere with your domestic politics. So I could see our Chinese friends saying, well, we didn't get much in return because we don't seek to, uh, to do that. So how would, you, how, did, how would your book respond to that? Well, hopefully that I'll, point? I'll respond to your question better than I did at, at the podcast because <laughs> I've had some time to think about okay. it now. Um, I, think, I, mean, I think there's a lot, there's a lot there. I mean, Chinese aid ostensibly comes with no strings attached, they're always strings. Um, but I think one of the ways to maybe think about it is the way in which, when I, to use kind of the Chinese notion of guanxi as a metaphor, um, and this is something that guanxi, and this is, I'll explain it the way I explain it to my undergraduates because it's still, I think, the best way for me to, to understand this, this, this idea of, of, of relationships. Um, I assume most people here have seen the first Godfather movie. So the first scene of the well, yeah, the first scene of the the first Godfather movie, uh, somebody comes up to to the Don and asks him for a favor, saying, "Look, my I won't go into the details." And the Don thinks about it, plays around with him like a cat plays with a mouse before he kills him. Yeah, and thinks, "Okay, okay, I'll help you," but in exchange. There might come a time, and this day might never come, when I might ask you for a favor back. And I tell my undergraduates, this is going to, except in China, nobody would ever be so gauche as to actually articulate this. This is all understood. Um, maybe that's one way to conceptualize that, this idea of 
there are no strings attached now. We're not really thinking about it now, but who, who knows what might happen you know, in the future? Um, maybe this is a way to think about it in terms of kind of a contract being the beginning of a relationship rather than the culmination of one. Um, I think there's a book that's been written about the, uh, the bilateral relationship between China and Cambodia by Sophie Richardson, uh, Columbia University Press, called China, Cambodia, and the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence. And her argument is that this relationship really was um, cradled within these five principles. So it's more of a normative or an ideational argument that I might feel comfortable with. But it's consistent with this, with this idea, and it's an excellent book. Um, and I think she doesn't look at the same period I do because she didn't have the same type of data she had for other periods of, this, uh, of the relationship between the two countries. Um, but I think uh, the Khmer Rouge period fits in probably better um, into kind of her overarching argument than some of the more recent ones do. So, um, I mean, that's how I might answer answer that question. It's a, it's a, it's a the question is, as usual, better than the answer. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. let me uh, open it to, uh, yes. Um, and if what? you could, but might just introduce sure. yourself. Uh, Bill, I'm pressed to retired journalist. What uh, implications does China's, does your research into this subject have for China's ability to influence North Korea? North, so North Korea is a bit of a special case. Um, I think in a, in, a, in a more general sense, and, and this will come to, uh, let me start broadly and kind of work my way in. Um, one of the things that I worry about, and I worry about even more so having done this research, is it's not simply a question of China's influence, it's also China's ability to manage a crisis. My sense is uh, everything's going to look pretty good for China for quite a period of time until there's a crisis. And then I, I'm really unclear as to whether or not it will be able to manage one particularly well. Um, and it might be akin to the way in which China had to manage the crisis of the Vietnamese invasion of Democratic Cambodia, uh, which was not, um, it, it, came as, it came as a complete surprise uh, to people who were on the ground in China. I mean, they were negotiating uh, uh, with the Cambodians over kind of the next five years of, of trade two days before the Vietnamese entered Phnom Penh. So they were, which was uh, when exactly end of 78? That would have been, that would have been December of, uh, late, I think the negotiations were on December, I'm sorry, December 22nd of 1978. So three days before they invaded uh, Cambodia, not entered Phnom Penh. But, so at least for the, the people on the ground, there was really no, but to the, the question of North Korea, I think, the thing that's, that's particularly problematic there is um, we're under the impression, or we're the, under the assumption that China can really force Pyongyang to do things that Pyongyang is, is, is not willing to do and that China is somehow not being as forceful as it would like to be or as it should, that maybe it's holding something back for some reason. Um, my sense is it is holding something back, and the reason why is it doesn't want to push North Korea too much, because if the regime in North Korea implodes, that means 10 million North Koreans streaming into China. Um, 
I, I was just talking with uh, uh, a colleague, Kevin O'Brien, who's at the um, at the, the, the 38th parallel, and he was saying all sorts of kind of amazing stories that were there. So between the the, the, the two Koreas, I mean, you have things like ecosystems that don't exist anywhere else in the world because no one's been there for 50 years, 60 years. So it's, whereas I remember when uh, I was at uh, Dandong on the North Korean border with China, I was with some Chinese uh, guests and they took us on a boat um, and we were about as far from the North Korean border as I am from Jan. And it was a kind of very awkward situation where you had these listless North Koreans kind of looking at us like that, and the Chinese pointing at them and saying, look at how poor they are, and look at how much better off we are. Um, and I was just hoping they didn't speak Chinese. But it was really something where, you know, if the river freezes over, you know, there's the, uh, the barriers to, uh, to entering China are all within North Korea, not, not, not within China. And if you have an invasion like that, that's a particularly, it's doing better now, but it's the Rust Belt of China. So it's really not a, it's, it's, it's a place where 15 years ago you had some cities that had upwards of 30% unemployment. So it's really a, 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 a doomsday scenario for, for, for people in Beijing to think about the implosion of North Korea. And so I think they're playing it very, very safe, and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they don't want to uh, rock the boat because they're likely the ones who are going to fare, if not the worst, the second worst. Uh, you had a map at the end that um, showed recent uh, numbers with China's uh, foreign aid uh, in other parts of the world, and I was just curious as to whether or not um, I mean, you're saying that there are certain implications for the way Chinese bureaucracies work that might be applicable today, but um, do you have any sense of um, comparison, any case studies, or are you thinking about looking in that direction? That's one question. The second one is just whether or not you um, um, did any research uh, through the Cold War International History Project archives on the, uh, the period you were researching. So let me take this, the, the second part first. Um, I looked at China's relations with, with Vietnam and with Albania uh, during this time frame. Um, one of, because these were two, you know, Vietnam for, for reasons of, 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 of proximity in Albania because it was one of China's larger um, uh, and more strategic allies, um, which gives you an idea of how isolated China was in Albania. So. But the, uh, one of the one of the interesting things was with with Cambodia you really had the full the full package. So I mean you had you didn't just have an outlet for Chinese engineers and skilled workers to go and, and, and ply their wares and, and, and build things like um, you know the, the Uhuru uh, railway in Tanzania, for example. I mean this was something that really encamps it was it was uh, something that was crafted and calibrated for you know, the needs of Cambodia. In a sense, Cambodia was, at that time, was, was unique in that China had sought for more than a decade to, to, to be a, a, a rallying point for the developing world and had not uh, been successful. So this was really essentially a, uh, it, just, it fell into Beijing's lap. Um, 
In terms of the of the, you know, the, the the larger question of, of, of implications, I mean, I, I don't want to. I want to be very careful. I'm I'm not. There are people who are China scholars who are much better prognosticators than I am. Um, I'm on record as saying in 1997 that uh, watch out, uh, Chao is the man to really you know to really watch. He's going to be he's going to be powerful. He's going to do he's going to do great things, and he was pretty much purged a few months later. Subsequently, my colleague Alan Carlson asked me, so what do you think, you know, when the whole Bullshit Lie thing began? What do you think? Is this big? And my response was, flash in the pan. These things happen all the time. It's just, you know, people get, you know, chattering on, you know, on, on the interwebs. You know, so I mean, I just completely missed them. So I, I want to be very, very careful in terms of, you know, what I'm predicting, you know, or suggesting. What, what I am saying is that this is consistent with what other people like David Shambaugh are saying. This, you know, this whole notion of China spreading itself quite wide, but not terribly deep. And that lack of depth might, might influence kind of how things move forward and how China is likely to react, again, you know, in, in a crisis. I'm throwing another log on the fire by saying that to understand the actual types of dynamics, as well as to maybe look at some of the variation you know, that, uh, across projects, across uh, time periods, um, that one place we may want to look is the bureaucracy. Um, and in fact, I'll just one one last thing I'll I'll say there is um, more re one of the interesting. I just read a, a paper by Barry Naughton where he was arguing that. Under the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao administration, you actually saw some institutionalization of economic policy uh, within uh, the government, as distinct from the party. Um, and as a result of that institutionalization, which everybody had saw it as being a good thing, uh, as a result, you saw a, a, a downturn in terms of the, the rate of economic development, um, an increase in, in, in corruption and, and, and rent seeking. Um, and so one of the things that Xi Jinping is doing now is he's introduced this um, deepening of reform leadership small group, which is a party small group that is that has no people with strong economic backgrounds among its top 23 members. It's a 43-member leadership small group, so it's not terribly small. Um, yet, it, one of the things, that, but it's it's the kind of key. He wants it to be the key decision-making uh, uh, body for economic decision-making. So if anything, we're seeing even more um, uh, fragmentation um, and superimposition of, of, of new institutions onto old ones. Uh, there, are I, I, um, there are people who I cite in the book who have worked on China's uh, um, uh, energy bureaucracies today, and the, and the picture that they paint uh, makes the energy bureaucracy, which was never terribly coherent, um, something that is, uh, seems to me to be almost impossible to navigate these days. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, the assumption that you have to carry um, uh, to, to really animate this beyond you know, this, this one case and take it to different places in, in space and time is that you have similar degrees of, or com comparable degrees of fragmentation within China's Institutions that that manage this project, uh, manage these relationships. In my sense, is that it's still 
very much the case. I don't know if that answers the... Frank, <coughs> Frank Dale, United States County Exchanges. Uh, this may go beyond where you are, but let me raise it anyway. Have you had any opportunity to make any comparisons between what we talked about today and USAID in Cambodia now, or USAID in Vietnam at that period, just up, up until 75, or USAID in Laos and Thailand? In other words, are we talking about a unique Chinese-Cambodian relationship, or are we talking about a global institutional relationship between a, a, an aid giver, big nation, and an aid receiver, small nation? Or can I just run that a little bit? Yeah. Also, will it comparable between Cam China-Cambodia aid giving then and now? So, in terms of the China and Cambodia then and now, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, you, you have this, I mean, China still undertakes all of this under this, this larger rubric of, of, of the five principles of peaceful coexistence, this, this uh, of lack of uh, this, this non-conditionality. Um, it's also, it's, it's similar then as and now in that uh, the types of projects that China is willing to undertake largely are the ones that Cambodia wants and, 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 and insists on. Now that would be, that would seem self-evident, except one of the things that I find certainly in Cambodia today is that uh, there are certain things that the U.S. is willing to fund and there's a whole bunch of other things that it is not willing to to fund. So there's, a, there's in addition to this idea of, of, of um, uh, conditionality, there's also kind of various things that, um, that uh, donor countries are institutionally geared towards, towards setting up and those that, that they are not. Um, beyond that, um, I think there's a strategic element to all of this, which I didn't really talk about much during the talk. And, 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 and in terms of China's relationship with Cambodia then, obviously the 600-pound the gorilla in the room then was Vietnam. Now it seems to be whatever China's interests in that in the region are. Um, Cambodia is China's best friend in the region um, in that it's, it's, it's scary. It, it, it's recent interactions with the Philippines have been quite negative. Um, China is on the wrong side of history as far as a number of ASEAN members uh, uh, aver, yet Cambodia is squarely in, in China's corner. Uh, and that's something that uh, um, I think underscores the importance of that particular bilateral relationship um, and, and makes it adds or, or contributes to this idea that um, it was important then for geo strategic reasons, it, it remains so today uh, for geostrategic reasons as well. One of the things that's different uh, in China uh, uh, today versus during the time period that I'm, that I'm talking about, and also which is different from, say, the USA relationship, is that China also uh, is involved in all sorts of um, uh, extractive operations as well, for minerals, timber, 
Um, and uh, Cambodia is one of the places where China is able to uh, engage largely un unconstrained in real estate and in, um, in, in, in textile production. Um, and it was China, at, that's a different um, uh, dimension from China during this time, the time frame that I talk about in the book, where uh, the manufacturing that went on, uh, largely Cambodian exports to China were, were, were mostly uh, uh, kind of exotic uh, 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 forest goods. The only kind of really strategically important commodity was natural rubber. Um, I know less about the U.S. AID relationship, um, but it is it does in, in, in kind of the, the, the in my limited experience, um, it really tends to be focused on a couple key areas, whether it's uh, human rights, whether it's um, uh, um, things like HIV prevention. Um, you know, there, there, there are a couple, there's always three or four um, major focal points. Um, and if it falls outside of those, um, there's, generally less of an opportunity, or there, there, there's, the aid doesn't exist you know, for those other types of projects, those other types of relationships, whereas in China, it's, it, my sense is it's more a question of what do you need, if that, if that answers your, your question. We have time for one more brief question. Yes? Question would be Roxanne. Oh, Roxanne Whitkin. Um, I'm wondering whether you could say who in the Chinese so called bureaucracy in the mid 70s um, was advocating agreeable relations with Cambodia? So who was? Yes, who was favoring that? You, I believe you implied that it was a general group. Mm -hmm. And it may have been a sort of general nonsense at the time, you know, supporting our brothers abroad. Right. And I wonder now whether the um, impetus for trade or the impetus for expansion is to acquire more, uh, not only minerals, but, but land on which to grow things, to serve China's exploding population or exploded population. Because you see the Chinese coming to this country and buying a whole lot of stuff, including real estate. A whole lot of stuff. They moved into Africa, they moved into Latin America, and they're bringing a lot of natural resources from those countries to their own. And it seems to me it's pretty one-sided in terms of interest, or I'm, over, I'm missing something. So those are my two tiny questions. Well, and Andy, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to keep the answer even tinier. Okay, well, let me <laughs> let me take the second one first. So my sense is it fits a larger pattern. Uh, Cambodia is a small country, so there's so only so much that you can do, but it certainly fits within that pattern. In fact, they just uh, there was just a, a huge sale of Cambodian land um, that was uh, I, I forget the exact dimensions, but, but something really quite quite extraordinary um, to you know, for to be built on and, and, and developed. Um, it is a one-sided relationship. The person, or the only person in Cambodia that really seems, or, or the only stratum 
in Cambodia that really seems to be benefiting from this are elites and particularly Hun Sen. So this is a these are these are two regimes that really kind of know how to work with one another. I mean they understand each other, I think implicitly, I think that's part of it. In terms of this the first question, if I can just briefly answer because it's such a great question, and I, uh, you know, I want the, you had a number of different people within the Chinese government and party at that time who were pursuing a relationship for any number of different reasons. So you had a number of the leftists who saw themselves being in in, in decline in the early 1970 or early 1977, late 1976, making pilgrimages. <coughs> To Cambodia to kind of shore up their support back home to say, look, they're they're even more radical than we are, and it's working. Maybe we, you know, and that we don't. I mean, we all know what happened, what happened there. But it was really something that um, um, I, um, I'm, I'm spacing on his name right now. Um, uh, uh, the the Dajai wasn't Jidong Chen Yongwei. Spent six weeks in Democratic Kampuchea, um, not just spending time with elites, but really visiting as many model communes as, as he could. There were others as well. Um, then you had others who were pragmatists who just saw the eroding relationship with Vietnam, and they decided that we need to have a counterweight. Even though Vietnam is Vietnam and Cambodia is Cambodia, it's better than nothing. Um, so there were. Uh, I actually do speak about that um, at, at, at some length at the beginning of the book because it's really important. I think it's really important for political scientists, anyway, to understand the various different levels of analysis and the types of interests that a top leader might have versus a, the, a, a minister of a bureaucracy might have versus workers within that bureaucracy or versus people in the foreign policy elite why they might pursue that relationship and whether or not, even if they have different reasons for doing so, would they, on a simple yes or no uh, dimension, even though they, they, they would pretty much agree that this is a relationship that should, be, that, they should, that should be pursued, there are all sorts of different reasons why they might come to that conclusion. So, so absolutely, absolutely. Andy, that was a fascinating talk. And thank you all for coming and participating in a great discussion.